What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, historian Eric Foner will talk about Will Smith's six-part series on Netflix. It's called Amend, and it's about the 14th Amendment, which established birthright citizenship and guarantees equal protection to all persons in the United States. But first, what are we going to do about the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We reached her today at home in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, Trump got more votes than any other candidate in history, with one exception, Joe Biden. The one who matters. <laughs> but of course, not all 74 million Trump voters showed up at that Stop the Steal rally of his in Washington on January 6th. Only a few thousand went there. And the majority of those people did not storm the Capitol. Only 800 Trumpers did that. The rest stayed outside and yelled and shouted, which is their First Amendment right. So it's not really as bad as 74 million people. But John, one in five Trump voters supported storming the Capitol, and that's 15 million people. And 40% of Trump voters think he, quote, definitely won the election. And another 35% say he probably won. That's a lot of people. You're right. That's a lot of people. What are we going to do about them? Ann Applebaum, a writer for The Atlantic, has also been thinking about this. And she has a proposal on how to bring back the Trumpers. What's, what's her idea? Well, her idea, which she says derives from various peacemaking attempts in Northern Ireland and places like that that have been, you know, very, very violently fraught with differences. Um, she thinks we ought to concentrate on drawing the Trumpers in to 
sort of civic betterment, like Christmas decorations on Main Street. <laughs> no, that's an actual example. Christmas decorations um, and um, getting rid of the potholes in the road. And that if you can get people working together on these, you know, neutral good things, they'll be less likely to kill you. <laughs> well, uh, pardon me for laughing at this, but what do you think about Ann Applebaum's idea? Oh, I think it's very sweet, but I think that people are already doing those things. Um, the people who are, are going to kill you are not the person you have or have not been working on the roads with. <laughs> Something I have trouble thinking of myself doing. Um, it's, it's the people who commit these political murders we've been having are racist loners, um, anti-abortion fanatics, members of militias, incels, you know, all these weird people that are very much on the fringes of society. And it would be very hard to imagine them uh, sitting in, the, you know, in a town council meeting discussing how to fix the roads because they're not interested in that. They're interested in um, owning the libs and uh, winning the civil war that they think is coming. So really, this project has been going on since 2016 when Trump shocked us all by winning and we all did everything we could to understand how that happened. And one of the most important people we had was the Berkeley sociologist Arlie Hochschild, who had just finished spending five years in Louisiana with working class people and getting to be friends with them. And they are all Trumpers, and she published a book about them right after the election. She was a guest on our show. She said these people are her friends, uh, and we can uh, we we need to learn about them. Uh, what was Arlie Hochschild's view of the Trumpers that sh were her friends in Louisiana? Well, she said that we, meaning liberals and blue state people, Need Berkeley, to Berkeley faculty members. Berkeley faculty members need to climb the empathy wall, as she called it, or cross the empathy wall and, uh, you know, understand what these people were responding to. And I, you know, I had very divided feelings about that book. I thought it was a, a great work of literature. She really has such a gift, which you see in her other books, too, for making people come alive in the sort of fullness of their life. But I think she was a little tiny bit a victim of, um, what is it called, native capture? <laughs> well, I think she she liked these people and she identified with them so much that she forgot to ask some important questions like, did you vote for David Duke when he was running, like the majority of white people in Louisiana? Um, and she, she really kind of scanted racism there, that if somebody said, oh, I had black friends when I was young, you know, or I, I went to school with black people. That was that was enough. <laughs> and the, what she thought was the deep story of the Trumpers, of the, well, they were Tea Party, but I'm sure they became Trumpers later. Um, what she called their deep story was that you're standing on a line and people are cutting in ahead of you. And so they get the job instead of you or they get the whatever it is that's that's going, the good things of life that you have done everything you could to deserve. Now, who are these people cutting ahead? It's black people and women. Well, so in other words, you want to continue to be a privileged white person and have all the unfair advantages that you've always, and male advantages that you've already always had. Well, you can sympathize with that, you know, sort of like the rug is pulled out from under people when they're 
in midlife, but it was wrong that they had those advantages. You have to be able to say that. You know, at the very beginning of Trump's presidency, when we were first trying to figure all this out, you said something to me on this show that I've never forgotten. I was puzzling over the question of how could anybody vote for Trump, and you said, everything we hate about him, they like about him. I just got a, uh, an email after the column that you were discussing from um, someone who I'm sure is not using his real name, <laughs> uh, who after calling me, you know, a, a commie C word um, said, this is a civil war and we're going to get you. So there are people out there who really who do see this as a cultural, a culture war to the death. But of course, of course. I'm always looking at the the other side of this. A lot of his voters were ordinary, old-fashioned Republicans, people who always vote for their team and who are mostly interested in lower taxes and less government regulation of business and who basically don't care much about kids in cages but would be happy for any Republican to, to be president. This is different from the people who stormed the Capitol, who there's been some research on who they are. Yes, there has. And it's really an open question how different they are, because a lot of them were middle-aged, had regular white-collar jobs. They had families and houses and, you know, probably dogs and maybe a cat or two. And they were, you know, gave every appearance of being normal people. Um, and I think that we forget, we, we become so interested in these wild wild-eyed Trumpies, so people like the QAnon shaman, for example, <laughs> you know, and that oh, that horrible guy putting his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk and all that kind of thing, that we forget that in order to be sitting in Congress today, Lauren Boebert and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> had to have gotten the lot a lot of votes from normal non-crazy, non-shamanistic Republicans. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Most people who uh, who vote for either party, are they're voting for their team. They're voting for a few things that they want. In the case of Republicans, perhaps less regulation, lower taxes. Jesus told them to. Um, <laughs> it's a big mistake to conflate the Trumpers that Arlie Hochschild is interested in with the normal business Republicans who are middle class and upper middle class people. You know, everybody forgets that the median income of Trump voters in 2016 was higher than the median income of Hillary's voters. The key group here for us has been the people who voted for Obama twice and then switched to Trump. And there aren't very many of them. There's, you know, a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand. Unfortunately, they lived in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which in, you could argue they provided the margin that gave Trump the Electoral College majority that he did not have in, in the popular vote. Uh, one of our friends who studied this group was Gary Young, who in 2016 was a nation columnist, and he went to live in Muncie, Indiana for the month before the 2016 election, the heart of the Rust Belt, to find out about what we call these people. What he learned was that these were people who had hoped Obama would help them. They wanted Obama to help them, and they felt Obama had not helped them or not enough. And Trump now, in 2016, seemed to be speaking to their problems, deindustrialization, declining incomes of, of ordinary Americans. And he said he would do something about it. And while they said, 
They wouldn't really want to have Trump over for dinner. They wouldn't want him in their house, but he seemed to be interested in their problems, and so they wanted to, quote, give him a chance. These are the people, there's not a whole lot of them, as I say, there are not 74 million of these people, but they're the ones who we think we would like to win back. We would like to win them back. You're interested in that project too. Yes, of course. I mean, we need everybody that we can get because the Republicans have very successfully gerrymandered, which doesn't count in a presidential election, but it counts in other elections, a lot of other elections. They have gerrymandered, they have disenfranchised. Um, they're doing everything they can to shrink the electorate of potential Democratic voters and maximize the potentiality of people they think will vote Republican. So we need, we we cannot afford to just say, oh, well, the heck with you, you know, we're going to just concentrate on the people we like. And there's also an issue of, of justice, too, which is that there there are terrible economic problems besetting many, many, many people in this country. However, I will say one thing. And that is, it's very interesting that when, you know, people say, oh, economic anxiety, that's why people voted for Trump. Well, you know, who has more ec economic anxiety than black people, Latino, Latina people? Those are the people that have really st struggled immensely. And they didn't go vote for Trump. So that tells you that there's something, there's either something else or something in addition going yeah. on. Yeah. Joe Biden seems to know this. He has tailored his pandemic relief bill and his Economic Recovery Act to help ordinary Americans get jobs, improve their incomes, have better lives. And we are hopeful, first, that Congress will pass this, and second of all, that they will notice. Yes, and I think one really wonderful thing would be the passage of the child benefit piece of the legislation, where people would get money every month to take care of their children. You know, so many, America's so weird because there are so many countries that have this already. And yet it's this seems like this weird, oh, we're paying you to have a baby kind of thing. You know, <laughs> well, you shouldn't have children if you can't support them. That's the way a lot of Americans think. But I think it would be a wonderful thing because child poverty and the poverty of the of mothers is such a serious, serious problem. And it really holds the whole country back enormously. It's interesting that the best family support legislation has been proposed by Mitt Romney. He calls it the Family Security Act. Biden has a proposal like it. It's just not as generous. Romney's bill would provide all non-rich households in the country with $350 a month for every child they are raising younger than five. $250 a month for every child between 6 and 17. In addition to those, the thing you've been talking about, new parents would collect $1,400 just before the child's birth. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Iowa and who has a lot of um, working class Trump supporters in his extended family. He says this would be a game changer for, for his relatives. Yes, I think it would be a game changer for a lot of people. I mean, if you just think of Think of housing costs. Think of all the children that are growing up in falling down trailers and overcrowded urban apartments and everything in their life is difficult and crummy, <laughs> including what they eat and what they wear and where they go to school. What a difference it would make if, if we could provide everybody with a decent childhood like you and I had. Katha Pollitt, her new column at The Nation is The Trumpers Among Us.
You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. Now it's time to talk about the new Will Smith series on Netflix. It's called Amend, and it's about the 14th Amendment, which was ratified after the Civil War. It guarantees equal protection to everyone in the United States and established birthright citizenship for the first time. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, the Lincoln Prize for his work. Most of it's been about Reconstruction. He wrote about the 14th Amendment in his most recent book, The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the Washington Post op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, nice to talk to you, John. Well, I know you told your daughter that people would find some of the history in this new Will Smith Netflix series on the 14th Amendment to be too simple. What was her response? Right. Uh, she said, Dad, nobody knows anything about the 14th Amendment. <laughs> so, uh, I found this uh, disheartening since I've written a lot of books that have to do with Reconstruction, and some of them talk a lot about the 14th Amendment. But I'm afraid that she probably has good reason for saying that. So, so let's, start, let's start there. Briefly, what was the 14th Amendment? Why was it adopted? What happened to it? Why is it important today? Which, of course, is the subject of six hours of Netflix. Yeah, I mean, the, the 14th Amendment is widely considered the most important change in the Constitution since the Bill of Rights, anyway. It's a long amendment, the longest one ever added, and it covers a lot of things that arose out of the Civil War. Number one, the consequences of the abolition of slavery. What are going to, what's going to be the status of the 4 million African-American men and women who had been freed uh, because of the Civil War? The 14th Amendment established in the first section, which is the most important, it establishes the principle of birthright citizenship. Anybody born in the United States, except Native Americans at that point, uh, is considered a citizen of the United States. Native Americans at that point were citizens of their own tribal sovereignties. Uh, it goes on to say that states cannot deny these citizens the equal protection of the law. Uh, no, let me take that back. It cannot, cannot deny to any person, which goes beyond citizens, to aliens, immigrants, the equal protection of the law or due process of law. And um, it also says that states can't abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens without naming what those actually are. In other words, the amendment put the idea of equality for all Americans into the Constitution for the first time, equal protection of the laws. It, it made the Constitution something that really related to the lives of individual Americans in a way it hadn't been uh, before the Civil War. People could, it, it, people could now constitutionalize their claims for equality and progress, uh, et cetera. Uh, and over the years, particularly the Equal Protection Clause has been used by all sorts of groups who were not really on the mind of Congress in 1866 uh, to expand their rights. The most uh, 
recent example uh, is uh, gay men and lesbians who wish to marry. And the Supreme Court's decision upholding the right of marriage or denying states the right to prohibit it uh, is very much an equal protection uh, decision, uh, that they deserve the same equal rights before the law as any other uh, Americans. And of course, the 14th Amendment was used to overturn uh, school segregation in the Brown v. Board of Ed decision. Segregation said the court is inherently unequal and therefore banned under the 14th Amendment. But one could go on with many important decisions that have arisen out of the 14th Amendment. I will note, though, that there are five sections, and that all that I've spoken of now is section one. There are other parts which have become very uh, uh, relevant lately. We will get to those later in the program. So the challenge facing Will Smith and his team was how to make a documentary about all this. We know the form of the traditional historical documentary on TV. We've been watching it most of our lives, usually on PBS. Ken Burns is the master of this genre. An unseen narrator tells us what we're supposed to learn while the audience is shown images from the past. And then experts, talking heads, historians appear on screen to explain particular points. Will Smith wants to do better than that. He's got a lot of celebrities. And they don't just explain things. They speak the words of historical figures. They reenact historical events. He does show us documentary images from the past. Uh, he also has lots of fast cutting, lots of, he's on a glitzy set. He plays contemporary black music. We have hip talk by the hosts, uh, for example. Uh, episode one begins with Frederick Douglass, the great black abolitionist of the 19th century. And Will Smith introduces him by saying he is so much more than his killer fro. I wonder whether you consider this approach to be an improvement on Ken Burns and PBS. Is it, is it a good idea? Well, you know, I was involved very closely with a PBS documentary about Reconstruction a couple of years ago that Henry Louis Gates was the producer of. And I, it, I, it was very good. It won some prizes. It was in the more traditional mold, as you say. I think there is virtue in breaking up the mold a little bit and trying something new. I think, you know, the 14th Amendment is difficult to convey visually. Uh, it's difficult to convey uh, without a lot of talking about court cases and that kind of thing. And I think he wanted to make it uh, livelier than it might uh, otherwise have been. So for, for example, let me just describe the opening segment on Frederick Douglass, his life as a slave is told in animation. And then they have a wonderful award-winning actor, Mahershala Ali. He was Don Shirley in Green Book. He was the detective in True Detective on HBO. He portrays Frederick Douglass's arrival in New York after escaping from slavery walking through a set with giant uh, images of lower Manhattan in the mid-19th century. And then big surprises, various celebrities appear to do play other parts. Joseph Gordon-Levitt appears as Andrew Johnson. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was Edward Snowden in the Oliver Stone movie. He's, <laughs> he's come a long way. Uh, and then historians appear, David Blight, Christopher Bonner, Martha Jones... Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and you, and there's music, there's uh, 
a lot going on on screen and it does keep you interested. Yeah, I, I think it, it is interesting. I think uh, Will Smith, I have never met him. I was interviewed for the show, of course, as you say. I, I think he probably concluded uh, that uh, historians can be fairly dull uh, much of the time. <laughs> I would never say that. And uh, actors, actors whose lifeblood is how to convey text, you know, speeches and everything in a lively and engaging manner uh, can really be an addition. I, I don't have any objection to that. Obviously, this is not, you know, there's a, there's some things that are kind of made up, like these cartoons and animations, etc. But the basic history is told in a pretty uh, clear and mostly effective way. So I don't have any objection. I, I commend him for trying to shake up the traditional TV documentary uh, system. They decided on six hours of Netflix TV, and that's a lot. That's a lot to fill up, And uh, but it is, it is lively all the way through. When it gets to the modern era, there's a lot more visuals available and things like that. Now, let me ask about how they organized the, the six hours. As you've explained, the 14th Amendment started out as being about the aftermath of the Civil War and the status of, of freed slaves, how did they decide to divide up their six hours and how much of it is about black rights, which of course have been the heart of what we historians have studied? At yeah, time. well, it starts off with um, the whole issue of citizenship. Who is a citizen? And making the point very well that before the Civil War, the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision just declared that no black person could be a citizen of the United States birthright citizenship in the 14th Amendment makes all African-Americans and anyone else born in the United States uh, a citizen, which is a major step forward for American society. Then they move on to the battle over this and the reactions against the 14th Amendment. The second section does a little about Reconstruction, probably not enough in my opinion, but then a lot of it is about the Klan and the resistance, the white supremacist backlash which by the turn of the century had rendered the 14th Amendment pretty much a dead letter in much of the South as the Jim Crow system was being put into place. And then they move on to other groups. This is what some people might find surprising. Other groups for whom the 14th Amendment was a major vehicle for asserting their rights. The women's movement, they talk about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Paulie Murray and others and how they use the 14th Amendment to promote the legal uh, equality of women. The civil rights movement, of course, there's a section on that and the 14th Amendment being the core of the legal strategy uh, of the civil rights movement. Uh, then there's a whole, an hour about sort of privacy and marriage equality, which deals a lot with gay marriage and the Obergefell decision. Uh, again, 14th Amendment. And then the final hour is about immigrants and uh, seeking to obtain the rights laid out uh, in the uh, 14th Amendment. I think what's valuable overall is not only the specific history, but the sense that our rights are a battleground. Rights are contested. Putting something into the Constitution does not necessarily guarantee it's going to be enforced or enjoyed, that you have to be vigilant all the way through they're trying to find a, a pathway between what they keep calling the promise of America, of equality, and the reality of America, which often 
in our history has not lived up to that promise. But nonetheless, it's a kind of upbeat show. It keeps saying, well, the 14th Amendment can be, you know, can be made more powerful uh, if we just try to do it. And it's there to further help uh, create equality uh, in our in our society. So well, it covers somebody... a lot of ground and it covers a lot of different kinds of Americans, which I think is all to the good. Although, as I said, I, my, as, a, as a historian of Reconstruction, I was a little disappointed about how Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment as part of a much bigger effort to create a interracial democracy uh, in the post-Civil War South, how that gets a little bit lost sight of in the focus on the specific amendment uh, as, as the key to the story. So some of this is familiar to, to everyone, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, everyone knows who she is. Others are very unfamiliar. Pauli Murray is a name that probably is not known outside of civil rights historians. Yeah, Paul, it's, I appreciate the fact that they emphasize Pauli Murray, who really devised the uh, legal strategy using the 14th Amendment to claim greater equality for women. Her writings strongly influenced Ginsburg's legal cases in the 1970s and 80s where she was uh, really using the 14th Amendment on behalf of women. So that's, uh, yeah, that's probably new to people even who knew something about the women's rights movement and, and uh, that sort of thing. Other parts of it, uh, the civil rights movement part is probably pretty familiar, uh, even though it's now uh, 50 years ago. Uh, you know, people have seen this on TV a lot, <laughs> various aspects of the civil rights movement over and over again. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with people being reminded of it. But it's probably more familiar history than some of the other aspects. And the final episode on immigrants is all, again, fine since immigration is a big public issue today. Uh, but um, it, it lacked focus uh, in, in a way that the other uh, were uh, episodes were not necessarily guilty of. But overall, six hours, I'd say, as a historian, to the extent that people learn more about our history, that's good. You mentioned at the outset that this is all about Section 1, but there's more to the 14th Amendment, especially notable, something you've written about for the Washington Post, is Section 3. Nobody paid any attention to this till a couple of months ago I, I, when you brought it up. It bars from public office anyone who gives, quote, aid or comfort to rebellion or insurrection. And we had an insurrection on January 6th, the storming of the Capitol. There seems to be some sudden relevance to Section 3. Section 3, If you uh, two months ago, if you had gone and asked even law professors, what is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, they would have scratched their heads and said, gee, I don't quite remember that very well. It's a little more complicated than you said, because the people banned from office have to have taken an oath to support the Constitution beforehand. This is to bar ex-Confederate leaders, people who had been public officials before the Civil War or military officers who took an oath of allegiance to the Constitution and then um, joined the Confederacy and, and broke their oath, obviously. Uh, but it's not just confined to them. It, it has rarely been enforced, but it was enforced against some local office holders during Reconstruction. And it was even enforced in the early 20th century in, in Congress. Yes, I wrote an article saying, you know, this impeachment is all very well and good, but you could bar President Trump from public office by using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. If Congress declared that he has 
taken an oath of office and then given aid and comfort to the enemies of the Constitution, that would be sufficient by majority vote, not two thirds, to uh, bar him from future public office. Whether this will actually happen, I don't know, but that's in there. The 14th Amendment is, it's an example of the fact the 14th Amendment is trying to create a kind of new regime in the United States. One based on equality, one based on loyalty to the nation, loyalty to the Constitution, so excluding the leaders of those who led the uh, rebellion. And, uh, and so it, you have to look at the whole amendment, not just about what it's trying to accomplish, not just Section 1, which has been the focus of litigation coming out of the 14th Amendment. Eric Foner, he's one of the historians featured in the Will Smith six-part documentary Amend on the 14th Amendment, showing now on Netflix. Eric wrote about Section 3 for the Washington Post. He wrote about the entire 14th Amendment and its history in his most recent book, The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Thank you, Eric. Great to have Thanks you on the show. Much, I'm good to talk to you. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe that's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Start Making Sense.